Hello, this is Tony Speaks, and this is my lovely wife, Kim. We are the founders and co-creators of the lifestyle brand and podcast, Becoming Disciplined. Every week we meet, learn from, and share best practices with highly disciplined men and women from a variety of fields and endeavors. Follow us on our journey. Within the rural county that I live dwells a legendary local civic leader. There are different ways to be disciplined in this week. Our guest was invited on due to his emotional intelligence. I've seen this elected official care for his constituency with the same love that a pastor cares for his sheep, sometimes under adverse circumstances. Floyd Thomas is many things, a scholar, a community activist, an elected official for almost 30 years, a family man, but this week, Mr. Floyd Thomas is on Becoming Disciplined. Today on Becoming Disciplined, we interviewed Mr. Floyd Thomas. Mr. Thomas, welcome to Becoming Disciplined. We are so honored to have you. Thank you very much, Reverend Tony. It is good to be here with you. All right, all right. Now, Mr. Thomas, before you educate us and share your current story, I think it's good for my audience to be aware of your origin story. Every superhero has an origin story. Where did you grow up? Well, I do appreciate that. I'm not sure I'm a superhero, but I grew up in White Plains, New York, which was about 20 miles outside of uh, New York City. Okay, and it's, all right. You know, fairly small suburb of the city, but we're close to Yankee Stadium, so that's all that mattered as a little kid. All right. <laughs> now, uh, when did you make your way down here? My family is actually from Caroline. Uh, my my father's mother and father were both from Caroline. My mother's mother was from just across the line in King and Queen County. So my family's from here. And, and as, as a child, actually as almost a newborn baby, my mother allowed my my godmother and godfather to take me to Bowling Green uh, for summer vacation. Oh. So I, I basically grew up in New York and grew up in Bowling Green. So I spent most of my summers here, you know, had a wonderful time, fell in love with it when I was a young kid and said I always wanted to live here. Okay, okay. Now, uh, in New York, would you consider that, like, were you far enough out? Was it suburb living, or would you, were you still consider yourself part of the, part of the streets of New York? And they're like, what, what, what was that background like? It was um, more, more or less suburb living with a lot of people who wanted it to be like the hard streets of New York. Um, it, it, it was a unique blend of both worlds. And, you know, for the most part, you know, you know I tell folks, I lived in the part of New York that had trees. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that was a great thing. But it was a, you know, it was a great experience to grow up there. Um, there's a lot of things there. Um, when I was a kid, the Westchester County School System, which is where we were, was one of the top ranked school systems in the nation. So. By pure luck, I, I got exposed to a lot of great things. That's awesome. That's awesome. Now, uh, when you were a child, was there someone who inspired you with their level of discipline? Was there someone that just like, wow, that person 
they're, they're always they're they're either either they're always on me or they're always really inspiring me by just their ability to get something done. Yes, um, and and really not not just one person. My my mother was a single parent before that term came up. You know about she raised basically my sister and myself by herself and she worked as uh, well first she worked in a doll factory right across the street from where we lived basically and the the doll factory was like a symbol of our growing up they had a seven o'clock whistle meaning start time they had a a lunchtime whistle and then a five o'clock whistle wow and she worked there that whole time until she got a job as a telephone operator and she worked there for 30 some years and finally retired from there her her dedication to do the day-to-day work and 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 to maintain a family basically on her own uh she did second jobs she did uh cleaning and things of that that nature to make sure we had clothes and food but that dedication really gave me the work ethic to say this is what you do and this is how you stay focused, which to me is the same as discipline. Um, the the other on on the totally other end, uh, my godfather, uh, you know who I refer to as, as my uncle Owens, was a former military man, extremely conservative, um, and and he was a no excuses do it by the book, this is the way you're supposed to do things, and you better do the right thing at all times. So with with those two, it, it was really a, you know, a, a path that I had no choice to walk. Um, <laughs> I, I did disagree with, with, with my godfather a lot when I got to be a later teen, when we went through the term, uh, the, the 60s and early 70s and I became a little more uh I, I I guess rebellious than he thought I should be <laughs> but it was still this is the path you walk and you make sure you do the right thing at all times mm. and it's a it's a lot easier said than done mm. okay well I know you were uh well you you have been for the longest time that I've that I've ever known you you I've always been involved in the community, always involved in civics. When or how did you fall in love with civics or community involvement? Um, I didn't. I didn't have any desire at all to be in politics growing up. Um, I had the, you know, responsibility to all, always vote, be involved. But there's there's a lot of things that go back to that. I actually attended the very first Martin Luther King Day celebration in uh, Birmingham, Alabama. I lived there for a couple of years as part of my job. And being in Birmingham at that celebration, I ran across what I'll say was a little old lady. She seemed quiet, un- unassuming, and me, me being the, the type type of person I am, I asked her if she was out here in the '60s, 
And she said, yes, I was. I stood right over there when they poured the water hoses on us and sick the dogs on us. And in that same park, right across the street was the 16th Street Baptist Church where the four little girls were killed. Mm-hmm. And the, the tie-in with that is the four little girls were the same age as my older sister. Mm-hmm. Who is still living? So they they'd be there. So that that community involvement was always part of the background, you know, the foundation. But the curious thing that happened to me was I had had moved back to Virginia and was in Bowling Green, and I was commuting to Reston every day. I was a manager for a. Fortune 500 company, and I had to hire someone for the Richmond office. So my thoughts were continue to make that two, sometimes three-hour commute one way, or hire myself for the Richmond office. And I talked talked to my, my manager, and I said, I've got the perfect candidate for Richmond. And he was like, who's that? <laughs> Me. And he said, well, you know, you can't manage a group of 12 people from Richmond. And this was late, late 80s, so it made a big, big difference. And um, what I said was, I will sacrifice and give up being a manager, work, work, work from Richmond. So what I basically got in that whole process was three hours every day of new life. And, and I thought about it and I said, what will I do with this three hours a day that I now have because I'm not stuck in traffic? Mm. And what I did at that time was decide to get, because I love Bowling Green, Caroline, I decided to get involved in local civic activities. And I got involved with uh, Dr. Walter Lowe, who at that time was the president of the local NAACP. I got involved with a man named Ed Raglan, who was in charge of the Caroline Civic League. And and then I got involved with the local Democratic Party, where where I met Bob Farmer, who happened to be the supervisor for the district that I was in. Mr. Farmer and I became friends. Mr. Farmer invited me to be a participant in the Solid Waste Task Force, which was a way uh, the county decided to get rid of those little green boxes that used to sit on the side of the road and then combine it to one thing. And while I, I was on that task force, they elected me as the chairman. Mm. And I was you know, totally a rookie and somebody who uh, was a lot younger than one of the senior folks there. One of the men was a former county administrator. Mm. And he and a couple of folks said, you know, you should be looking at being a member of the Board of Supervisors. And I was like, yeah, right, me. Come on, I'm not a politician. And <laughs> what happened was the very next year, we did a uh, new redistricting. And they created the 5th District for Caroline, which became the Mattapanai District. And I was in that district. It didn't have an incumbent. A lot of people convinced me to run. I 
ran in the primary and won, and then I won in the general election. Wow. And I found myself, you know, involved in civics without a doubt. So <laughs> it was kind of by accident, but it's really the way things work. I, you know, there, there, there is a master plan, and we all believe in that master plan. So right. I just happened to be in the way of the master plan. Amen. Amen. Wow. Wow. Now, whatever happened to that? I never hear about that. The Caroline Civics League, is it still uh, uh, in, in, in work? It, it pretty much faded away. Um, we had another gentleman take over, and for the most part, it kind of faded away. But it was a good group. I think it was there to give, you know, a voice to the folks who didn't really have a voice. Mm -hmm. But with the changing times, they developed more of a voice. So it, you know, did kind of fade away. Okay, but I think okay. the remnants are still there if it need, needs to be reactivated. I hear you. I hear you. Now, who can we credit with you becoming a young scholar? You know, uh, was that was that mom and and and, and your uh, godfather, or who is any anyone else that you can credit? Well, scholar is a relative term, <laughs> and, and I'll leave it at that. But there's there is no doubt that that my sister Karen is the one to credit for whatever scholarly achievements I've made. Um, I, I for the most part wasted my God-given talents until the tenth grade. Um, my my sister's quite a few years older than I am, and she would always say, "Why do you come home with no books? Why don't you do any homework? Why don't you study?" And I basically, in you know, I guess K through nine, I had the ability to answer the questions, you know, not put in a lot of uh, work and still get B's and C's, which as long as it didn't affect my little league baseball playing or my football playing was fine with me and B's and C's was acceptable. My sister said to me at my ninth grade graduation, when she was in college, she said, it's now time for you to get serious because the colleges will look at your grade point average in high school. Mm. And I, I didn't necessarily pay that much attention to it, but she repeated it a few more times. And I finally understood because she said, we don't have money to send you to college, so you better do something. Right. And my athletic talent was just enough to be good, but not enough to get a scholarship. So I had to try to rely on some sort of way to get there. And, and my sister kept saying that. She said, you better study for the SATs. You better get good grades. And, and it's, a, it's a funny story, if, you know, if I may share it. But I, I lived in an area, like I said, there was you know, a big downtown. And I was walking through downtown at, after stopping at a pizza place had a slice of pizza, I was walking down the street, past a bookstore, and in this bookstore was a book that said how to prepare for the college entrance exam. Mm. I just happened to be walking by it just that time. It happened to be in the display window. Right. I went back and bought the book. Wow. Wow. I studied and studied and did very well on the college um, test. Mm -hmm. 
and and I, you know, basically got a scholarship. Mm, that's good. So I I didn't I didn't get the chance to play baseball in college, right. but I got an academic scholarship, so I could go to college, which was really amazing. That is awesome. That is awesome. Now, did your uh, scholarship tell you which college you had to go to, or did you have your pick of colleges? Actually, I had. Um, well, I had a real desire to go to UVA or Virginia Tech, and mm-hmm. that, that that was my desire because I was, you know, a kid from New York who lived in Caroline, wanted to be in Virginia, but technically I was an out-of-state student. So I looked at it, and I couldn't afford to go to U- UVA at all. It, it was just totally out of the question. But I got a 50% scholarship for Virginia Tech. And, you know, I was look, looking at it and I was like, wow, it's still a lot of money. Where where am I going to get the rest of the money from? And out of the clear blue sky, Howard University sent me a letter. And I, I actually found it, you know, in a pile of old stuff. And it said, we're pleased to announce that you have a national competitive scholarship. Room and board is all taken care of show up on this date and you know you're here and and without a doubt i showed up on that date so i had a whole scholarship which was great that is awesome that is awesome that is awesome now uh wow just think about how different your life would have been if uh, no one had put that money there for a young for a young floyd thomas now while you were there at hu you made a decision. You made a couple big decisions, I think, that uh, helped shape your life. Uh, <laughs> why did you choose uh, Omega Sci-Fi? How did, how, did, how did you become a member of Omega Sci-Fi? What made you go in that direction? You had three or four choices. What made you choose Omega Sci-Fi? Well, well that's, again, part of the, and, and, and you'll see the shield behind me, but part of what I, what I experienced was my sister, again, um, she had pledged Delta Sigma Theta, which is the sister sorority to Omega. Uh, and and while I was still in high school, she said, you're probably going to go to college and you look like you're an Omega man, having no idea what that meant. You know, I was like, yeah. <laughs> thanks, Karen. Uh, and then when I when I was actually going through the process and it again it's it's funny how this master plan works my assistant principal in high school when i was discussing what to do with him take the full scholarship to howard take the half scholarship at tech what should i do and he said well i went to howard and it's one of the most cosmopolitan universities in america you'll meet people from all over the world You'll meet people that you'd never have a chance to meet under normal circumstances. And he happened to be an Omega man. Mm. And he, you know, he might have mentioned that casually. Mm. So again, when I finished, uh, you know, um, finished applying for different schools, part of it was local high school students sent their name into different groups. And Omega Sci-Fi in Westchester, New York, gave me 
250 or $500. I kind of don't remember now, but it was something very significant to me at the time. Sure. So I've got this background, but the, 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 the tough part about it is when you join a fraternity in the 70s or what it used to be like, you go through a period called pledging. And that's two or three months in, you know, in that time of focusing entirely on the fraternity and learning things about it and some other things that went along with joining a fraternity in the 70s. So I, I had a scholarship and the requirement on my scholarship was to maintain a B average. So my first year, I, I had a 3.8, which was great. My second year, I had to take physics. And physics is, is what we call a weed-out course. If, mm -hmm. if you're not really ready for college and you take physics, it's going to weed you out and, and you'll be sent home with a D in physics. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't afford to join then. But I, I passed physics with a B, which was great. And a, a few people in my class pledged at that time, and they said their grades dropped below. And I was like, well, I've got a scholarship. I can't go home. And the, that year, I saw the fraternity pledgees when they go through their last few days. Mm -hmm. It was just an amazing thing. And then they used to meet out on campus on Fridays and, and march around and, and discuss. And it was, it was a great feeling of brotherhood. And me being the only, you know, son, you know, I didn't really have that brotherhood. And it was just something that pulled me in. So I I say I joined, but I really didn't have a choice. Mm, that's good. Good information. Good information. Now, one of the biggest mistakes or wisest decisions a person can make is choosing a spouse. How did you know? that Miss Linda was the right one? And how can young men listening today find the right person? What advice, because you know, I believe you know, you've been married for longer than me and you picked a wonderful spouse. How can young men, how can, what advice can you give to young men listening today so that, or young women listening today to help them duplicate that wise decision that you made? The, the the easiest part is, um, and it, it's something that she always says, it's to find Mr. Right and not Mr. Right now. Um, that's that's the key. It's a it's a it's a long story with Linda and I, so I'll you know share just the highlights. She always says that that I spoke to her before we actually met, which. I don't recall, and if she says it, I'm gonna say that's okay. <laughs> what I do, re what I do recall, and and this is again the master plan here. I was in my dorm room, and and I had the flu or a bad cold, and a fraternity brother of mine came by to see how I was doing, and I said, no, "I'm really sick," and he said, "Well, let's go get something to eat. That'll make you feel better." And I was like, "I really don't want," to. and we went through. A back and forth of let's go out. No, I don't want to go out. Let's go out. We went out. As I walk through the dorm doors to the sidewalk, there's a group of five or six women 
walking past the sidewalk. So as we meet, we're right there at the same time. Of those five or six women, I walked right up to Linda and said, how are you doing? Can I have a minute of your time? <laughs> and she actually stopped. Uh-huh. And she blurted out her phone number. And I said, okay, thanks. And, and you know, she walked away. And the way she did it, it was like, he's not going to remember my phone number. And I don't remember how, but somehow I got a pen, uh, pen and a piece of paper. I might have written it on my hand. But <laughs> I did remember. And, you know, it was it was that coincidence. And, we, you know, we had a, you know, great relationship in college. Uh, some good times, some bad. But the, the key thing was one homecoming, her sister came by for homecoming. Her, her uh, sister lived in Baltimore, which is like 30 miles north of D.C. So her sister's there, and I wanted her to spend time with me, and she wanted to spend time with her sister, knowing she could spend time later with me. So we were um, standing in the middle of main campus, basically just the two of us, and I said, any woman of mine would spend time with me. And she said, any man of mine would would, would know that I need to spend time with my, my sister. And we looked at each other like, oh, okay, we understand now. And, you know, we've been here. It took us a few years to get married, but we've been married for quite a few years since then, 38. 38. Amen. 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 Now, how did you all, uh, well, excuse me, do you all ever get a chance to go back to the HU campus together and and, and reminisce? Um, We, not, not lately. We did for a while. Um, We'd occasionally go back for homecoming. Uh Um, And I think we've, we've ridden through there quite a few times since then, but I don't really think we've been, we've been back together uh for the last five or six years if if not more now i'm it's it's funny but but my mother's birthday seemed to always coincide with howard's homecoming right so there would be times that i would go to new york for for my mother's birthday and then on my way home i could stop at howard's homecoming for five or ten minutes say hello to people and then drive back home Mm. so I, i did that for like, or you know, a few years, maybe five or six years ago, and since since um, my mother's passed, I haven't been in New York in, a, I guess, four years or something like that. Now, your there days- was a time when I could swing through. It was it was on the way, so I could say, "Well, I'm going to stop by since it's on the way home." <laughs> now, your day did they have that McDonald's there? That famous McDonald's that everyone talks about, or or was it was that there in your day, or or did that come after you? That came after me, but what we had was um, a Wonder Bread factory. It was <laughs> just across the street from that. I, I think that's the most um, most visited McDonald's or the McDonald's with the highest revenue throughout the country that's, that's right there on Georgia Avenue. But on, on the other side, when I was there, was a Wonder Bread factory. And it actually made the entire campus smell like bread. And, 
you know, even though I had a scholarship, I was still a poor, starving college student. You can imagine smelling bread all day and you're saying, gee whiz, I wish I had something to eat. And, and we discovered they had a thrift store there, too. So we could get day-old donuts and, and, and bread and things, you know, there. But it's, it's changed quite a bit, quite a bit. I was, um, I was there in 19. I take that back. Yeah, 19, um, part, of, part of my fraternity was celebrating their 40th anniversary. Mm-hmm. So I did go to Howard then, and it was a great time. Amen, amen. Now let's time travel. Let's time travel to your first swearing-in ceremony as a public servant. What advice, if you could time travel to that swearing-in ceremony, you're, you go up to the past Floyd Thomas and you shake his hand, what advice would you whisper into his ear to that rookie public servant? What would you tell him that? What, what, what does he need to know that he did not know back then? Wow, that he did not know. Um, well, I think the big, the, the big thing to really know is to make sure you, you represent your constituents, to make sure you really do what you need to do. And, and at that time, it's really something that I've, I've run on the entire time. My platform then was jobs, communication, and education. And I've, I've kind of stuck with that. The uh, communication part was to make sure people know what you're doing. Make sure you know what people want you to do. Uh, and that's the, that's the biggest thing that I'd say anybody should focus on. And, and if you can understand that part because i had this discussion with a you know constituent a few weeks ago and he asked how do you decide when you know something is wrong but people who don't want you to vote for it or vice versa and and that's that's sometimes the decision and and the, and the dilemma that any public servant is in i may have more information about a project then the average citizen and the average citizen may say, oh, this is a great project. You should do it. But that additional data that may be there could say, well, it seems like a good project, but it's not really. So you have to you have to kind of work with what your citizens want to do. And if you can tell them all all the things they need to know, that's great. But it's um, really not an easy job when those two collide. And and that was really, I'd like to go back to that new supervisor six months later, because the very first year on the board of supervisors for me, the county went through a rezoning project that was probably the most divisive thing we've ever done in the, the county, you know, in my time. And that was, that was called the Haymount Project. And that project was a large planned subdivision north of Port Royal, right on the river, for 20,000 or so people. And the project inherently was a good project. It looked like it was going to provide some benefit for the county. But if the project had come, come to our uh, reality, it would have basically forever changed the county's uh, perception. So many people wanted to do it. The 
They thought it was a great opportunity. I was torn between the great opportunity and this is going to change the county forever. My constituents wanted me to vote for it, so I voted for it. Uh, and the the odd thing is, after all of that divisiveness and friends not speaking to friends anymore about this one project, it never happened. You know, the economy changed. The, the uh, developer lost his funding. He, he came back with funding. He, you know, didn't have the wherewithal to make it happen again. And it's been 30 years, and the project is it's approved. It's zoned, and nothing's happened. Wow, 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 wow. Now, um, you also had spent time as a software uh, sales executive as, as well, didn't you? Yes. Okay. Yeah. What advice would you give to someone in sales or someone working in, in you know, in the tech field? Because you, you spent a lot of years in that as well. Yes, I did. I, um, I started as a programmer. What, what we call coding now, but I, I started there writing software for computer-aided design systems, which was to me the most wonderful thing that I could do because it combined my, my architectural background uh, from college and, and, and my love for you know, computers, which were really just starting to hit big uh, when I started. So it, it, it worked out great for me that I had the technical background and then got into sales because the advice from my sales rep uh, friends would be, know what you're selling. And when you know what you're selling, you can explain it to people. But the most important part of, at least for me being a sales rep, was you were a problem solver. Mm. And and there was always a problem, a need uh, on that side. And I sold most mostly. It's it's funny. I'm not sure how this worked out again, but I sold mostly to state and local government, mm. where wherever I was. So I could see a state. I sold a lot of software to the Maryland State Highway Administration, sure. uh, so so they could design roads. I uh, did the same with uh, VDOT here. I think I taught VDOT, or at least the um, uh, department that did that. I taught them how to use their system, how to use their uh, output devices, and things of that nature. Uh, I spent a lot of time traveling, you know, doing that, which was great for me. Got a lot of frequent flyer points. Awesome. <laughs> now, uh... I've seen you, and, it's, and just for our audience, it's the reason why I invited you on here today. Um, I have I have seen you exude extreme levels of emotional intelligence. Um, when you know you have a very pastoral way of dealing with people and dealing with your constituents, I've only seen it. Ironically, my spiritual pastor is uh, is an Omega sci-fi man. Uh, I uh, went to North Carolina a AT and T or a oh, excuse me AT and T. Yeah, North AT and T. That's hilarious. I will definitely edit that. I may I, don't, I might leave that in just to make people laugh. But uh, <laughs> but um, you know I you know he's a great spiritual pastor and he had a great deal of he, I've always seen him with a great deal of patience and love with a congregation. 
but I mean, he's a spiritual pastor. So, you know, that, that kind of comes with the territory. Uh, but all politicians don't necessarily have uh, that muscle or, or that level of patience and that level of, of um, you know, that, that level of patience and love and emotional intelligence with a constituency. I, I guess I, I want to ask for our audience, was that cultivated over many years or have you always been a fairly patient and mild-mannered person? How, how, did, you, how did you get there? <laughs> um, I, I have probably more, more often than not been considered a mild-mannered person until a point. And then when I get to that point, I'm, I'm not considered a mild-mannered person at all. But I, I think probably with your pastor and I, we, we share the similar experiences of, of joining Omega as a fraternity. And, and part, of, part of what was the pledge process in those days, or at least for me in the 70s, was having one person yell in your ear about something and having another person yell in the other ear about something totally different and making you decide which one of those two was right. Mm -hmm. And the reality was, whichever one you picked, it was going to be wrong. Mm -hmm. So you, you learn to develop a sense of, I have to do what is right, regardless of all of the noise that's around me. And that's really the philosophy you have to have as a, at least a local politician, and I guess it should, it should go up the political chain to the federal. But the reality is there's, if you vote for the right thing or you vote the right way, vote your conscience, then you really don't have anything to worry about in terms of, you know, how, how people feel. I've, I've had I've had many people, and that's, that's the great thing about Caroline, I do love it, but I've had many people come up to me and say, I don't agree, and they, they've started off fairly intense. I don't agree with the way you voted on such and such, but I understand after hearing you explain it. I still don't agree, but I understand after you've explained it, and that's, that's all that I could ask of them, and I think that's all they can ask of me is, you know, you you look at all the sides and you go ahead and vote. And it's, you know, you vote on each thing the way it is. It's not, you know, I'm going to make a deal on this or that. You, you got to vote on each thing as it is. That's, that's probably the one thing now I'd go back and tell young Floyd, but I think he's, he's learned that quickly. Amen. Amen. Yeah, I can say... Uh... In my county, uh, even the Republicans who, now don't get me wrong, there's nasty people online all the time that have never met you. But uh, re even Republicans, when they have a conversation with Floyd Thomas, once they have that conversation, they may not walk away agreeing, but they walk away typically agreeable, you know, uh, because you just have that, you have that power, you have that power, you have that, uh, that way about you. Now, I'm a, I have a little off the topic. Uh, a little off the topic question. Uh, you're just going to go in another direction here. But I ask this of all our high performers. Um, and I think it's really important because I'm noticing even a trend of people who 
who are struggling in this area. As a high performer, how well do you sleep? Are you a good sleeper or, or do you hardly sleep? Or how well do you sleep? No, no, no. <laughs> That's a funny question. Um, <laughs> as, as far as my, my board decisions, I, I tend to hold the decision, discussion, a little longer than I should. Um, there, there are some who say, I've, I've made decisions, that's the end of it. I tend to hold on to it a little bit longer, think about it. There were times uh, when I first got on the board where board meetings would go to midnight, one in the morning, based on the amount of pub public comment we had. Um, on those nights, for the most part, I I felt like I did the right thing so I could sleep well. I held on to some things, so it took me a little longer to go to sleep, but I still slept well. And now that I'm older, um, there's a couple of other issues that, that, that affect my sleeping, <laughs> and, and I can go to bed. And and sleep well for a few hours. Sure, sure. <laughs> I get you. Yeah, I get you. I understand that. I understand that. Now, well, that's a really, and I, and I, I you know, I kind of guess I better clear that up a little bit too. But <laughs> part of being an old older man, but I I I am a uh, cancer survivor, mm. and I had uh, cancer in the tube that goes from your bladder to your kidney, mm. and. This is about 12, 13 years ago. And I had that kidney removed. So uh, one of the stupid things I did, and, and I'm one of the stupidest smart people in the world, is I, I smoked cigarettes for 30-some years, if not longer. And, and that cancer, the doctor said, was, was a byproduct of smoking. So they removed the kidney and that tube and you know, since then I've I've had some other issues as far as sleeping. But as far as making a decision, you know, board decision, uh, if I feel I've done the right thing, I can sleep well. That's good. That's good. Now, outside of the Bible and that SAT book that you purchased, <laughs> <laughs> what book outside of the Bible and that SAT book has shaped your life or had the most dramatic effect that we can go and purchase? Well, you know, I, I've, I've had this discussion before, and it, it was when I looked at it, it was, it was it was book and or movie because I read the first one, or at least read read most of the first one. But it, it was always To Kill a Mockingbird, which was one of my favorite movies, and and I've, I've read some other books, but but that that one has a really deep impact, uh, at least the first one, and make sure it's just the first one. But it, it showed the injustices of, of the times. And it also showed uh, someone when, when they were called upon to do a job, no matter what other people thought, they still did that job. And, and that's, that's really a tough thing because, you know, that's something we see now. And you'll, you'll lose friends sometimes based on what you say, and it may be the right thing, but there are people who will 
no longer be your friend because you took a stand on a specific issue. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it goes back to sleeping well, too. Amen. That was Gregory Peck, correct? Was that yeah. Gregory Peck in, yes. in the original? That's right. Now, at Becoming Discipline, we examine discipline or organization in the following areas. Spirituality, mental discipline, physical discipline, uh, emotional intelligence, financial discipline, time management, and home and data organization. Now, most people, I have to say this twice, so I'm going to read it off to you again because most people are like, can you say that again? Uh, spirituality, mental discipline, physical discipline, emotional intelligence, financial discipline, time management, and home and data organizations. Uh, which of these do you consider your strongest points? And which of these could use some work? Well, let's, let's start with the one that could use work, which is, which is kind of obvious for me. Um, and, I, and I guess that's, that's data discipline. Um, I am, without a doubt, a hoarder. <laughs> and I think it runs in the family. Um, my mother was a hoarder. I've, I've tried to explain it to, to uh, others as people who, who never really had a lot growing up want to hold on to whatever they have as long as they can. Um, my excuse is I may need it. Um, I've got several boxes of I, IBM computer cards mm-hmm. that you used in the late 70s to program a computer. I don't think there's anywhere that could read those computer cards, but I'm holding them because I might <laughs> need them sometimes. Uh, <laughs> so my, my, my data management and, and thing management, I, I guess, would be it. I back up my computer on a regular basis and I back up everything. Mm. Then I back up the backup. Um, and I've learned because I, you know, have lost data before and that's, that's fairly traumatic. So, you know, I'm a hoarder. That's the one thing I need to work on. Um, I'm trying, but it's hard. So the other, the the other one that I, you know, really think is a strength is, is my ability to focus, which is kind of emotional management in, in that. You know, that's another thing. I think I've got um, a hyper-focus thing that once I once I start working on something, that's all I really care about until I get it accomplished. And and that's a, you know, blessing and, and a curse sometimes. But it, it does help to accomplish the task at hand. Mm, that's good. The, one, the one thing that, that I've done with you know, with a great, great deal of concern is the pandemic and the coronavirus testing and vaccinations. Um, I I helped get the very first testing site done done down at Second Mount Zion uh, to target folks that weren't being tested, couldn't get tested. I worked with um, Pax Urgent Care, which is right there in Belmont to get them testing supplies. Uh, and now we're doing the same thing with vaccinations. So I've you know, worked with the health department directly uh, to get different vaccination sites and to make sure we had a, a way to get our people vaccinated here, here in Carolina. So I'd like us to finally get past that big hurdle and we all need to get a shot 
you know, so we can move ahead. Sure. And and that's one thing I'm trying to do. We're, I think, it, at 50% vaccinated within the county. Mm. But where we were doing 200 shots a day at the community center, we did 80 the last time. Um, we're doing targeted sites now. We did a targeted site at Salem Baptist Church, and only 12 people showed up. Mm. So we're... We're trying to hit the rest of the folks that that need that, you know, so we can all really get past this. We can't get, you know, we can't get to the really great things until we jump over this last hurdle. That's right. That's right. All right. Well, we're fifty percent is better than the country average, right? I believe so. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, Mr. Thomas, we can't thank you enough for coming on. You did not have to do this. You didn't need to do this. We truly appreciate you. You have the last word. Now, just so you know, your audience, the audience members are typically 30 to 55-year-olds. Uh, they're just trying to, I call them the Get Better Club because they're just trying to be a better version of themselves. And hopefully there's going to be a young community servant or a young, uh, a young politician that might uh, click onto this and be inspired to, to, to be a better version of themselves. Do you have any closing thoughts for our audience? What I what I have to say to people is is really focus on your dreams. First of all, have have dreams, have goals that that you really want to set to achieve something great. And then focus on your dreams. Focus on having options to your dreams and then Wherever you land, you'll find yourself in a great place. I think that's the that's the real thing. For me, personally, I had a dream of being an architect, designing a better world, uh, building skyscrapers and things of that nature. I didn't do that. I managed to work with people who did do that. And then through that work, I managed to get involved in civics to help people really achieve their dreams. So work hard, make a plan, plan your work, work your plan, and you can do whatever you want to do. If you were blessed by today's podcast, we encourage you to use Facebook and reach out to Supervisor Floyd Thomas. Let him know. Let him know what his words of inspiration and encouragement meant to you. There are a lot of people who serve us and do well by our community and they never hear with their own ears what they mean to us. Yes, we say wonderful things at their memorials and we say wonderful things at their retirements, but a lot of times while they're in the fight, while they're in the struggle, while they're still serving, we don't truly appreciate them like we should. Send a message, make a call, and let Supervisor Floyd Thomas know how much you appreciate him. Thank you.